In the course of assimilating these subliminal injections, you would do well to study the underlying sonic wavelengths that permeate your listening device and pump the raw sound energy into your auditory systems. Welcome to another episode of Square Waves FM. I'm your host Bianca, and my and with me as always is my co-host Brian, my loyal minion, and very irritated darling. I don't know if you can hear through the voice uh, recording <laughs> here, but my arms are crossed. <laughs> Indignantly, I might add. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good. Uh, that's a good adverb. Yeah. So, welcome to episode fifty-six. Fifty-five, not fifty-six. Oops. Today we'll be discussing uh, virtualization or virtual computers. Or both. Both. Yeah. So why don't you get us started off with uh, some comments about last week's show. <sighs> okay. <laughs> All right. We'll get into our main topic in a little bit. We don't have too much pre-show stuff to go uh, to go with this week. But uh, why don't we start off <laughs> with this awesome tweet from uh, Joe Mastriani. Hi, Joe. Of upper memory block. <laughs> of upper memory block podcast. I've been. Uh, we didn't get a lot of tweets to the uh, to the, sh- the uh, show accounts this week, and so this these couple of tweets have been staring me in the face all week, and it makes me laugh every single time. <laughs> so Joe says, "So at work, I use Bluetooth headphones to listen to podcasts, but they don't switch over audio right away. So I connect them to my phone and hit play, but before they take over audio, my phone speaker blurts out." Assless wonder. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> oh, we're like a couple of Shakespeare's, dude. Oh, yeah. Or like Newfie Shakespeare's. <laughs> Newfie Shakespeare's. Do you want to tell the story of Newfie Shakespeare? Okay. Newfie Shakespeare. This dates back a few years ago before we were doing this podcast. We were visiting a little shitburg in Ontario by the name of Napanee and staying at to a uh, bad motel, just something off the uh, 401. It was I, better than we expected, considering it was like the cheapest hotel we could possibly find. Mo- I mean, motel. it was, in terms of price, cheaper than Howard Johnson, but in terms of quality, it was a uh, fucking five-star hotel. Well, not exactly five-star, but it was uh, fine. <laughs> yeah, so there were, it was pretty vacant, aside from this one neighbor we had at the end. There was us, and then two doors down were these was this was this one gentleman and his friend one and the gentleman we are referring to we have dubbed the Newfoundland the Newfie Shakespeare because he was he was quite articulate with the profanities it was artistic in a way it really was <laughs> and it wasn't you know profanity that would make a sailor blush it was profanities in a way that were quite expressive and people from Newfoundland and from like maritime east coast Canada have like a very telltale accent. It sounds kind of like Scottish, sort of. It's a really charming accent, and they have very charming little colloquialisms and stuff. I visited Newfoundland, and the people are like above average, phenomenally wonderful, charming, friendly people. So friendly. Mm-hmm. So this guy was friendly as well. I remember uh, at first we were just like hanging out and relaxing in our in our hotel uh, after getting dinner or something, and then we just wanted to relax for the evening. Mm-hmm. And we could hear the guy, like, through the walls of our, the paper-thin walls of our room. And so we kind of 
poked my head outside and I noticed that the guy was sitting out like on uh, like just in front of his door in a lawn chair with his friend <laughs> and drinking a couple of beers or whatever and like swearing up and down so much so much fellow language he was such a funny guy so I was annoyed I was getting annoyed though because we just wanted to relax and not have to hear that through the wall so I figured okay well let's go shame the guy let's you and I just like sit in the, the deck chairs in front of our place we'll just sit there and surely we'll shame him into silence <laughs> no such luck no such luck so I think we just sat there tweeting all the funny things that he said yes I that's true <laughs> I, think mo- I think most of it wound up on Twitter but mixed in with our eventual uh, photos from the uh, Trenton Air, F- Air Force Museum no that was later Trenton Napanee, what do we do in Napanee? We just went for dinner and wa- had a walk around, I think. In the, yeah, that was unquote, the yeah, first area. part of our trip. Is that where we like walked into a Chinese restaurant and then walked out again because we were scared? Yeah, we were scared out of a Chinese restaurant because it looked too Western. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there were forks on the table. That was like, oh, okay, yeah. I'm out of here. That was the last straw, wasn't it? <laughs> Indeed. Most people get scared when they see, ch- most Westerners get scared when they see chopsticks. We get scared when we see forks. Yeah, when we don't. <laughs> Yep. Oh, we ate something yummy. We ate like donuts or something, didn't we? I think we did. I think we ate some donuts. Oh yeah, we got a package of powdered of like mixed oh, donuts yeah. from Alamblas near it. And it was like it was like sugar donuts. No cinnamon sugar donuts. And powdered sugar donuts? Yeah. And chocolate and was there chocolate too? I don't know. We picked out. That was so great. Uh, it was we like a had- box of twenty four miniature <laughs> donuts and we ate our shit and we both like and we polished off the box in one sitting. <laughs> That was living. That was pure gluttony, but somehow it wasn't the same as having a bunch of uh, Timbits. How did we get on the topic of uh, of Newfie Shakespeare again? Um, Assless Wonder. Oh, yeah, Assless Wonder. That sounds like something he would say. Yeah. So the memory of Newfie Shakespeare lives on in us. <laughs> and so thanks to Joe for spreading that around his office. Yep. Hope we didn't get him fired. <laughs> yep, hope we did. But hopefully he got a couple of strange looks. Or, like, what the heck? Where did that come from? Yeah. Well, he could just he could just claim he has uh, Tourette's syndrome or something, and that should be the end of that. True. True. Yeah. Any other uh, tweets, or is that it? That's. I think that's all the tweets. We didn't get a lot of tweets this week. Mm-hmm. We had like an overabundance of phenomenal uh, voicemails last week, so uh, I think everybody's climbing up this week. But that's fine. True. Then again, it could either Almost be feast or famine with these people. It's like they can't just, you know, have it like trickle in. It's either they bombard us and then or they leave us high and dry with uh, letters and mails. I guess so. Well, we did get a very special letter this week. We'll oh, get to that true. in a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, another thing I wanted to mention briefly was this podcast that I kind of found by chance. I was just uh, looking through YouTube one day and in one of my recommended uh, videos was... A TED Talk. I don't remember what TED stands for or why they call that the event that. But uh, the talk was by a guy named Roman Mars. Doesn't that sound like a fake name? Yeah. Roman Mars. That's like such a fake sci-fi protagonist name. Or he sounds like, I don't know, he's like some kind of like ancient Italian messenger or something. (laughs) Ancient Italian god of war. Anyway, Roman Mars. I think I got his name right. It sure sounds fake. He um, gave this TED Talk about uh, flag design, what makes a good, impactful flag. And it was really interesting. I'll uh, stick it in the show notes. Let yes, me, yes it was actually talk. quite an interesting talk. He did an excellent comparison of uh, flags that uh, met 
that that had good met all the uh, criteria for a good design and then contrasted them with some just downright awful flags. Surpri and unsurprisingly, most of them were from American states and cities. Yeah, well, he kind of took his time to pick on different American state and city flags, city flags. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing he could he didn't do any of the uh, European state or provincial flags just because because uh, I gather his his audience was primarily American, and so they would get a sense of familiarity with these. I guess, but he did uh, praise Amsterdam's flag. Because it was just like the three X's from the three natural disasters that shaped their past, wasn't that it? Yep, they pulled it from the shield of the uh, of the city's coat of arms. Right. As opposed to the American cities, which added the whole coat of arms, plus a bunch of other stuff, plus like the words of the name of the city, and plus... Uh, Whatever like other gratuitous uh, back-patting stuff they could think of. Yeah, it was a very amusing uh, talk. His his podcast ninety nine percent invisible is it starts off about four minutes long and I think the latest ones he's up to episode two hundred or so the latest episodes are about twenty minutes long mm -hmm. but they're just like so uh, concise and packed and dense with information they're just very charming and they're well produced I really like the production of them you and I have to listen to one of those yeah. in the car one of these days the mm -hmm. production is really interesting it remind I haven't been like this interested in the production of a podcast since, I guess, the Space Quest Historian podcast, where you had all of these different segments and interviews and all these different kind of encapsulated single parts to his podcast. That would be Trolls. Hi, Trolls. He, our he, favorite ditch enthusiast. Our favorite <laughs> ditch enthusiast, sure. <laughs> yeah, but he's a, he's a really good podcast producer, I think. He's done such a, an interesting, eclectic variety of different shows with different formats some of them there are nowadays they're more uh free form and less lovingly produced i guess you would say less meticulously produced than before but mm -hmm. you should definitely check out his space quest historian podcast because it doesn't get uh older it's about old stuff already mm -hmm. but yeah just about 99 percent invisible and the uh episode about flags after listening to it, I, I found myself going to look up our city's, our Toronto's flag. And I suggest that if you do the same, look up your own city flag and your own state or provincial flag just to see if it meets the criteria listed for a good flag design or, or rather a good uh, image design in general. Yeah. If you uh, if you find an interesting flag or if you look, when you find your city flag, tweet it to us at Square Waves FM and we'll uh, retweet it be kind of interesting to see but i love i really fell in love with toronto's city flag it's very simple it's just like a canadian flag with a really simple simplified stylized representation of our odd city hall building yeah on a blue background so it's pretty standard canadian colors i mean red and white are our colors but then a splash of blue kind of uh brings it all together at the sky yeah i don't know where the blue came from probably representing our skyline I guess. I'd like to think of it that way. Of course, well, most other people might suggest, oh, to make Quebec feel included. Yeah, not in a city flag. <laughs> Maybe in a country flag or in a provincial flag, but not in a city flag, you'd think. <laughs> so, what else have we got? What else have we got? Um, oh, so I'm going to put a link to the 99% Invisible podcast in the show notes. I'll also put a link to uh, the Toronto city flag because it's just so awesome looking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The only other thing I wanted to mention before we get to our letter is where did I even find out about this? I think it was from also browsing around on YouTube 
I'd been like more watching videos and kind of kicking back. I've had such a busy uh, week at work that I've just kind of come home really pooped. I believe, yeah, I'll uh, put this in the show notes too. I love this channel from a user named Mame, Mame Player, M-A-M-E, as in the multiple arcade machine emulator. So main player has all of these like long plays, these videos showing the whole arcade game beginning, beginning to end of all these different classic arcade games from the 80s and 90s, like early 90s mostly. It's like a mesmerizingly cool channel. So one of the one of sorry, I'm just going to put this in the show notes before I forget. Main player YouTube channel. So one of the games that I that I saw on there that I didn't know existed was a game called Xevious 3DG. I used to play this like top-down space shooter game, Xevious, at my grandfather's arcade in Winnipeg. I've talked about how my grandfather, my on my dad's side, rest in peace, he uh, used to own an arcade and give me all like let me play all the tokens that I wanted to, which was super duper fantastic and only intensified my enthusiasm for computers and games and stuff. That's awesome. It was the best. Those were the days. Oh, yeah. That's how you make all the other kids jealous. Oh, that's for damn sure. <laughs> I said it before, but I'll say it again. One thing I always admired about my grandfather was that he had two arcades at different times, one at a time. And uh, the second one was kind of in a bit of a seedy part of town. And a lot of uh, kids would come in when they skipped school to play games. And he would kind of discourage them verbally. But one thing that he did was he said that if you bring in your school report card, He'll give you a free token for every D, two for every C, three for every B, and four for every A, just to in incentivize kids to try hard in school. So it's just a small gesture, but I always thought that was very nice. I admired that. So anyway, um, one of the games I used to play at his arcade was this top-down space shooter kind of a game called Xevious. It's a game that I liked a lot. Xevious? Xevious? I'm not sure how you pronounce it. X-E-V-I-O-U-S. Um, unlike... A lot of space shooters, it had two fire buttons. One was for shooting like air-to-air -air rounds, and one was for shooting air-to-ground rounds. Um, really fun game. I played it quite a bit. It had like nice, sharp graphics. So I'd never heard of this sequel, which came out in the early 90s. It was like one of those old, early 3D, uh, like blocky polygon kind of uh, games. Um, it's gorgeous. It's really gorgeous. But what struck me most of all was this awesome techno soundtrack. So I... Uh, Oh, I gotta, I gotta look up the uh, artist. I forget who the artist is now. It had this amazing techno soundtrack, so I went uh, searching for it and I found it. Um, I'll put the link to the the site in the show notes. It's you know I just pirated the soundtrack. I could only find it on eBay. It was very very expensive. It was about a hundred bucks for the three disc soundtrack. Uh, but I love this soundtrack. That is it's amazing. Outrageous. Yeah, I know. That's just a it's a collector thing, it, and it was I think only in Japan. Mm. Well, there's something we can look for when we're there. I guess so. It'll be a pretty random thing to find, but I, I just love the soundtrack. I listen to it all week. Shinji Hosoe is the name of the of the uh, musician who composed it. Love it like crazy. So let me just double check. Yes, I do have that in the show notes on a website that has a whole bunch of video game and anime soundtracks. Uh, it was made by a Chinese guy, Chao Than. So that's in the show notes. Um, I'll link directly to the Xevious 3DG soundtrack. I just absolutely love it. All right. So we have a very special letter waiting for us this week from a brand new uh, listener that we hadn't heard from before. Um, 
Oh, I only have his... Did I not... I think it was Emmanuel? Hang on a second. I absolutely have to recognize this fine guy by name. Emmanuel uh, Perignon from France. Mm -hmm. Do you want to read it or should I read it? Uh, wow, this is long. Yeah, it's a long letter. Wow, do you feel like hearing your voice more or you want me to read it? You read it. I like your voice best <laughs> of all. Okay, so Emmanuel writes, Hi, Squares. I have I discovered your podcast two months ago and been listening to almost all the past episodes. It's a real pleasure to listen to you. You sound so friendly and gentle. have to say, I miss Chris's swearing a bit. Ha, 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 ha. We have to make up for that, I guess. Boobs. I already thought I would. Mitten. <laughs> I was horrified to hear what happened to your birds. Mm -hmm. I was enjoying the happy beeping, the nice pics and videos of them. I was so sad, I was almost crying. Mm -hmm. You have my very sincere sympathy. I especially like your digressions, like when you talk about birds or food or what for what or whatever for hours, as I'm not really a gamer. I mean, I enjoy listening to you talk about especially old games, but I tend not to like modern games anymore, besides Braid, Mirror's Edge, and Portal 1. To talk a bit about my history with computers slash video games, in France we had, back in the 80s, the Thompson line of machines, MO5 for instance, which were very crappy, I think, but that's what we had in schools, mainly secondary, to learn the print hello stuff. <laughs> Basic. But some had a kind of stylus with which we could write on screen, CRT of course, and that was quite innovative for, at the time. But really, when computer and consoles took off for good in France, it was thanks to the NES and the Atari ST slash Amiga 500 in 1987-88. That nah, stopped scrolling. <laughs> and now I lost my spot. In high school, it was all about the Atari versus Amiga War. Those were far too expensive for my parents to buy me one, though. I got an NES for Christmas in 1988, but only got one or two games per year because my parents didn't give me any pocket money. Actually, I'm very grateful for having done that. I would otherwise have bought tons of candy shit and video games, which would undoubtedly have been responsible for me not working at school. So I got Super Mario Brothers 1, Super Mario Brothers 2, Zelda 1, Mock Rider, and another one I can't remember. In 1990, I was the only fool to buy a NC Super Graphics. NEC? Yeah, NEC. Super Graphics. Super Graphics. As I liked the PCE library, and that console was supposed to be far above the PCE, and I was still waiting for the power console peripheral. <laughs> it was super expensive. We know what happened. I ended up having five games, two being super graphics only, and three others were PCE games. In 1992, I was even more before and bought Neo Geo. <sighs> Why does that sound familiar? It was uh, an extremely expensive console that was uh, so fantastic in its fidelity that they used the same hardware in arcade games. Wow. Very expensive home console. Mm -hmm. Not only, not that I had a lot of money, but only, but I only did work through the summer, just like in 1991, where I bought my Toshiba VHS. <laughs> <laughs> and further, I had two rich friends, one who had one with a lot of games. So I played with the bundled game Nam 90, 
1997 amazing game and all the games 1975 1975 <laughs> those guys let me for one year because at the end of 1993 I was playing Mutation Nation on the Neo and realized I was bored as hell and couldn't care less I tried to sell it but didn't manage to a guy proposed to me in exchange for an SNES and a few games and a Mega Drive and a few games telling me it would be easier to sell, huh, the buy. Sure. <laughs> Typo. Whatever. Typo. Yeah. Hey, I'm reading this literally, folks. Mm. <laughs> I finally traded these consoles, for which I didn't care at all, even though I liked F-Zero a lot, for an Atari Mega System. As, uh, Mega ST? I guess it's ST. As I was starting to yep. make electronic music and needed a computer with a MIDI. I also fi I also finally bought a cheap Omega 500 in 1993. The main game I played on those machines was uh, Room. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Which was unbelievable and is still, in my opinion. Although I played quite a few others, of course, like Shadow of the Beast series, Wings, etc. I bought a PC in 1999, mainly to play Grand Prix Legends, which I'm now ma which I now mainly use, which I'm now. It sorry, I'm having uh, verbal diarrhea here. Let's try this again. Nowadays, I mainly use my PC for making music. You can check some of the stuff here. We'll put the uh, link in the show notes mm -hmm. if you're willing to, and of course, write some emails to you. Yay, emails! Still, I'm sometimes playing NES and Super NES via RetroArch emulator. Oh, hmm. never heard of that one. Me neither. With the fantastic 8-bit do. Uh, cool. So we got a reference to a couple of uh, game pads here. Hmm. And at the moment, I'm into Super Mario Kart and Tetris NES. Good choices. So hard. <laughs> Keep up. Cheers and keep it up, Squares. Thank you very much, man. Yeah, Emmanuel, thank you so so much. Great to hear from you. A lot of cool stuff in here. Mm -hmm. um, we oh, we love letters like this. We love hearing about people's computing histories and about how it affected their lives and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry if I stumbled. <laughs> I'm trying to read around. Uh... Oh, that's okay. Yeah, you're reading. Uh, you're reading off the. Uh, you're reading off of my screen here. Just take a look at his uh, Discogs page. Where he, uh, ooh, what? Looking at his Discogs page here, sorry, uh, with a description of the stuff that he's released. His name is Dynarec. <laughs> the don't laugh at him. The pro I'm sorry, it just. Profile says French electro techno producer and live performer born in Strasbourg. He is the founder of Vaporwave. Do I mean, yeah, the label. Wow, damn, that's cool. I most certainly have to check this guy out. Those are all of those words are like those all strike a chord deep inside of me in terms of my musical preferences. I most certainly have to check that out. Mm -hmm. Oh, what a pleasure to hear from you, Emmanuel. Uh, merci beaucoup. That's great. Uh, does he mention anything here that I wanted to chat about? He mentions Braid, Mirror's Edge, Mirror's Edge, and Portal as modern games that he enjoys. Those are all very fine. Choices. There's a sequel from Mir uh, Mirror's Edge coming out this year, I think. Mm -hmm. And you probably need a halfway decent computer to play it. Probably do. Yeah, given that uh, the what when we when you played when you first played Mirror's Edge, it ate your computer for breakfast, especially with that physics sequence where you're oh, working through the window. Actually, it ate your computer for breakfast, not mine. The reason was you had an ATI 
Video card you had the NVIDIA. NVIDIA, that's right. And it used PhysX, which is owned by NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. So ATI cards, it was kind of an, it's kind of a dick move. ATI cards had to disable PhysX. Otherwise, anything with physics like breaking glass would slow things down to a crawl. It was annoying the way that they implemented it on PC. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Yeah, you know, it always ran well for me because I've been sticking with uh, NVIDIA cards for the past decade or so. Mm -hmm. You know, I have NVIDIA cards as well, but mm -hmm. I'm still have, I still have my uh, NVIDIA CPU. No, not NVIDIA. Uh, AMD. AMD CPU. Yeah, you have an NVIDIA CPU. Yeah. Oh, so what else did you mention? He owned a Neo Geo. I'm so jealous of that. Those things were like I forget how much they cost back in the day. They're like six ninety nine or something in the in the was it in the early nineties? Six hundred ninety nine bucks. That's probably like twelve or thirteen hundred dollars by today's money. It was a very expensive console, but it was so beautiful. It had really amazing um, sprite graphics with really beautiful colors and a powerful CPU. It had really, really great looking games. And it, unlike Super Nintendo, where you would, they would like remake an arcade game for home, you would, with the Neo Geo, you would play the arcade version at your home. Oh, no awesome. compromises. So basically they just took the arcade game, put it on a, put it on uh, the appropriate uh, medium and you stuck it in your machine. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, that is so sweet. That's so why they didn't so even have to port it or anything or compromise the game. That's right. I think it was inexpensive if you owned an arcade relatively but it was expensive relatively if you just played it at home mm. and he mentions the game 1975 i played that in the arcade i really liked that game it was similar to another game that which was originally on the arcade but i owned on nes called cabal uh what is uh nam 1975 it's um it's a 2d shooter i guess you would say um it's like a foot soldier a guy who's like on his whatever like a, a solo uh, soldier with a gun and he can run left and right but that's it um and it's one static screen and people kind of shoot downwards at you and you shoot upwards at them and uh you can dodge and roll and leap to the sides and stuff like that and you pick up power-ups and you get uh different weapons um, so you just have to like clear the screen of all the enemies. Enemies pop up for like four or five minutes or so, and then you go to the next area. Mm -hmm. It was pretty challenging. Num seventy five had really good sound. I remember, especially uh, in the arcade, it had this awesome sound when you inserted a coin, and it had one of those track balls that would pinch your hand. <laughs> those always killed me. So hey, yeah, Emmanuel, thank you so so much for writing in. We love to hear from you. Can't wait to hear from you again. I'll see if I can track down some of your music and. Uh, if I can do it by the time we publish this show, perhaps we can't because we have a busy weekend. That's something we got to mention while we're busy this weekend. Yes, we are. But as soon as I get my hands on some of your music, I will most happily put it, uh, one of your songs at the end of our show with your permission. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about that. I would love to be able to do that and to feature your stuff. So, yeah, how the hell could I forget? Yesterday, can I say it? <laughs> I'm uh, saying it, dang it. It was already on Twitter, so it's not like most of these people don't know. All right. Yesterday was Bianca's birthday. Happy birthday, Bianca. Thanks, shithead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you, baby. I love you, too. We, you, picked such a good, uh, you picked such a good restaurant for dinner yesterday. It was not uh, something that I would have expected you to choose, but I'm glad that you did. Yep. And then, like, dish-wise, we ordered the exact same thing. We sure did. Where did we go? We went to the keg. We ordered the same wine, the same starter, the same main Shared the same shared dessert and had the same cup of coffee after. Yeah, that's pretty pathetic, isn't it? But I got different vegetables than you, at least. Yeah, the you keg have... is a steakhouse, by the way. It's a steakhouse chain in, in Canada. 
despite being a chain, it was actually good. It was fantastic. It was very it's impressive. It's so rare for a chain to actually... Uh-huh. Rare. This is a steakhouse. Crickets. <laughs> there are fucking crickets in here right now because of you. Sorry, my, nice, pun, my nice. pundar went off. Oh. <laughs> You've been spending too much time with your father. Oh, uh, yeah, I suppose I have. Mm-hmm. There's worse things to do. <laughs> All right. <sighs> so happy birthday, dude. That Thanks, was fun. Pal. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight we're going to go to, um, what's the place called? Southern Accent. It's a Cajun restaurant. Yeah, your dad's going to take us. That's going to be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. We're going to eat cornbread and sausages and fish and Pickled okra. stuff like that and blackened cactus crap or something <laughs> like that. I don't know what they eat in the South. That's great. Yeah. And tomorrow we're going to go to... <clears throat> You remember what the event is called? I don't know. It's in my calendar. Oh yeah, Haru Mitsuri Spring Festival. Oh yeah, at the the Japanese Canadian Cultural, Cultural Center. Center. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> it doesn't feel much like spring after uh, Mother Nature took a huge flying shit on the city. A huge flying shit on the city. Yes. Well, yeah, we had like a big snowfall this week, but it's going to be super warm in a couple of days. Anyway, that's enough talking about this BS, isn't it? Yeah. Let's move on. What did you play this week? I played Techno Babylon. I'm on the uh, fourth chapter now. Yeah, you have a lot to go. I told you, uh, I advised you not to uh, start it. So you're so, so I've read two books at the same time. Who says I can't play two adventure games at the same time? Yeah, I guess you can. Because the adventure game that we're really looking forward to playing in the very near future is... I just can't remember what it is. I mean, I've been seeing a lot of tweets about it, but oh, I just yeah, can't have. remember the name of it. I'm actually, I'm, maybe Francisco can tweet that for us. So I, I, if only we had more reminders about I whether know. it was available for pre-order. I just don't remember. I know. Mm, Francisco <laughs> was talking about it. And, uh, and who's that other guy? Dave Gilbert? Yeah, that guy. Hmm. What is the name of that game? Oh, that's right. Shard Light. <laughs> Shard Light. Comes out on Tuesday. That's so wicked. Mm-hmm. Really looking forward to playing that. We pre-ordered it the day that it uh, was available. I uh, Let me stick a link to that in the show notes. In case there wasn't enough links to the uh, pre-order already. <laughs> I don't care. There are oh, I, didn't say you could, I didn't say you couldn't. I didn't say uh, th- that you couldn't care. I'm just saying <laughs> that, uh, you know, there's uh, plenty of... Uh, hype around it right now. Not enough. I don't care how much hype there is. We will very proudly hype it more because Francisco and Ben are our boys. Mm-hmm. So we wish them lots of success and great reviews and all of that kind of stuff. Can't wait to... Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to avoid reviews until I've played the whole thing, uh, as I do with games that I'm really, really looking forward to. But uh, that comes out on Tuesday. Tuesday, uh, March the 7th. And March the 8th. So, no. Tuesday? What the hell day is shit? Tuesday, March the 8th. Bite me. Okay. Uh, uh, She's uh, biting uh, me. Uh, uh. I bit your arm, and it was delicious. Yeah, I know. Okay. Okay. So what else what? we played this week? Huh? We're talking about stuff we played, because I said I'm playing Techno Babylon, I'm on Chapter 4. Oh, how are, you, how are you liking Techno Babylon? What's your impression? It's very good so far. Um, so I'm happy that uh, for a couple of things that I've done, there's two possible ways to do it. The jackass way and the uh, reasonable person way. Oh, is there? For example, when you're talking to got the terrorist down on the subway, you can either uh, have uh, Lao shoot them or you can talk them down yourself. Oh, that's right. 
or you know going into uh, Gil Vanderwall's apartment, you can either break, you can either tase the door, or you can have Lau fix it for you. Hmm. Just two examples. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. That's always nice. Yeah, more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah. Unless you have a uh, sphinx, of course, and then you can't really skin it, can you? Well, you can skin it. You just can't shave it. Good point. What are we talking about? Techno Babylon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Okay. Well, the word babble is in there, so I thought I'd uh, be you, doing it justice by babbling. You most certainly did. <laughs> All right, what's this thing? Uh, this is a free-to-play game. It's the stupidest crap I've ever seen. It's called Shakes and Fidget. I have no idea what the fuck this name is supposed to mean. But it's Me not- neither. Well, it's German. It's uh, the, the German name is Shakes und Fidget. <laughs> it is. And um, is there supposed to be like a German translation for it? Or is it just one of those things where they took like two random English words and stapled them together with an article of like an, like their conjoining article? Well, the the tone of the game is it's like a it's, it's kind of tongue in cheek. I mean, kind of. There's not a lot of text or anything. There's not a lot of context, but it's a little bit tongue in cheek. It's um, it's an idle game. It's like uh, an adventure capitalist kind of a game, I guess you would say. It's not a clicker, but it's like a, a time-based strategy kind of a game. It's not even a strategy, is it? It's just an idle RPG kind of a game where you uh, click a button and you ride your horse for three minutes and then you fight an enemy and then you do something else. So what can you do in this game? You can you, fight enemies. Yep, you can... Uh, you can uh, uh, fight other players for mm-hmm. honor and gold. That's right. With no, is there a penalty? I think you lose gold if you lose a fight. Actually, uh, no. I think what happens with that is, uh, I think you, you do. I don't. I think you don't. You don't. Uh, you lose. You lose. But you lose honor and uh, rank, not gold. I think you do lose gold, but I might be wrong. Anyway, mm-hmm. what else can you do? You can buy gear and replace what you have, and you get gear drops sometimes if you do a certain quest. You get experience points and you gain levels. You can train to increase your uh, abilities. You can have a guild. I don't know. It's like every RPG, basically, but without any direct gameplay. You just click one button and you wait for it to happen. Yeah. So it'll hold our interest for a little while, I guess. Yep. It's cute. It's cute. It's uh, better. It's free. That's that's the right price for me. Yeah, exactly. That's the only price for me if I was going to play this game. It'll hold my interest for a little while anyway. Mm-hmm. So I've been playing that a little bit too. I uh, finally uh, finished The Shiva, which is another Wajidai game. I started it a while ago. I probably got like three quarters of the way through, and I don't know what happened. I think I got stuck and put it down and meant to pick it back up again, and I never did. But it was like two hours long. I finished it in a couple of sittings. It was pretty good. Um, I like the writing. I love the art. I really love the music. Um and it's nice to see a story. It's a story about a, a rabbi who's the protagonist and is sort of solving a murder mystery, I guess you would say. I think it sounded more like clearing his name because he was a suspect just because he had been put into uh, this person's will when they had no contact with for like an extra period of time. Yeah. I mean, the story was okay. Um, David Gilbert said it was one of the very first games he ever made. So, I mean, that's cool. It wasn't without merit. It just uh, is a little uh, over the top. It's kind of uh, a caricature and a little 
uh, in, in a few key scenes, but that's okay. I still enjoyed it a lot. I'm glad that I bought it. I'm glad that I played it, especially for like the, it's a remake. The original uh, came out several years prior and had different art and music. So it was nice to see Ben Chandler's uh, art uh, doing what he does. And I appreciate that he works in several characters that are referenced from the other games, or at least from uh, Blackwell. Yeah, the woman seems to be talking to herself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was it was all right. It was all right. I'm glad I played it, at least. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I wish I didn't play it, so that's something. But uh, he's done better in subsequent years, so that's a good thing anyway. Yeah. And uh, finally, there was uh, there still is a humble bundle for Star Wars games, and it's got lots of good stuff. Let me... Uh, let me bring it up so, just so that I can say what's in it. We have Star Wars Rebellion. That, I believe, is a game that uh, Joe Mastriani talked about when we talked about Star Wars games. It was like a strategy game, quite a challenging one. There's Star Wars X-Wing Alliance, which I think was a later space simulator, kind of a Wing Commander-style game, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh... Yeah, seems to be. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. There's um, Star Wars Galactic Battlegrounds, which I think was an RTS game. There's, uh, no, uh, yeah, RTS return base. There's the original X-Wing, the original TIE Fighter, both of which are phenomenally good space flight simulator games for DOS. There's, uh, uh, well, the the big one that I bought it for was Star Wars uh, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, which is uh, a game that I loved when uh, uh, when I was younger. I played it like crazy. Um, it was a really nice... Um, it, was, it was a really good flight simulator. It didn't have any story kind of tying together all of the missions. It... Uh, is that even in the bundle, or did I buy that separately? Whatever. X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter. It's a really cool game. It's just like a bundle of scenarios. Um, you can... Uh, it had really nice 3D graphics. I remember back in the day playing it on The Zone, which was Microsoft's multiplayer uh, environment, kind of like Battle.net. doesn't exist anymore. They had lots of parlor games and stuff on there. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett used to play uh, Bridge or some card game together every week and chat about business while playing on the zone, so that's kind of notable. Uh, anyway, I uh, could not get X-Wing versus TIE Fighter to work on Steam, which really sucks. There's some kind of an incompatibility which keeps it from working properly in Windows 10, so I'll get around that, or I'll just find another way to play it outside of Steam. Um, or you could still play it with Steam and uh, do something related to today's episode. Well, I don't know if the Steam version will be will, will work. Yeah, I could, perhaps, actually. Maybe that's the easiest way to do it. I'll talk about that in a bit. <laughs> but finally, two of the games that came with it are Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2, both of which I own and have completed. I, I own them both uh, in the box and then completed them out of the box, and now I own them on Steam as well. And I, I might go back to complete them again. They're just very long games, and they're a little bit dated, but they've got such good stories. They're still my favorite RPGs that I ever played, but maybe they live better in my uh, nostalgic memory than they do as something to replay. I don't know. But because I already own them, I'm not going to do a contest or anything. If anybody would like a couple of Steam keys for those games, just uh, tweet us, and uh, I'll happily turn them over to the first person who asks for them. 
So I guess that's it. Let's go to our topic, shall we? Um, mm-hmm. I should preface this by saying that this topic is specifically with Emirat Akrigo in mind. He uh, tweeted the other day, geez, a couple of weeks ago already, I've been neglectful in getting back to him, um, asking if someone could give him a hand to set up some virtual machines. Uh, I think it was Windows 98 he was having some trouble with, and that's that can be a tricky one. Uh, so I volunteered to give him a hand, which just hasn't materialized yet due to schedules. But I thought I'd talk a little bit about virtualization. I hope we can talk about it. It's something that I play with more often than you do, but I don't want to exclude you from the conversation. True, but I've made enough observations, and I did, and I have had a bit of experience with it. Plus, we uh, did virtualization in school as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, did we? I don't even remember. Oh, yeah, we did. We did VMware. Yeah, we. it's not like we didn't do it out, because, I mean, it's, it's one of the things necessary if you're going to have a server set up to know something about virtualization if you have to have, uh, you know, for testing environments mm-hmm. and for testing software, because you might have a large organization where not everyone is on the same operating system for different reasons. That's true. That's very true. Mm-hmm. So perhaps, I guess we'll start off on the basics of it and to why you would virtualize. Yeah, let's talk about that. Well, I just stated the first one is uh, the profession, which is the uh, workplace one where you have, or you'll probably, or you might have people with uh, different operating systems and you need to make sure that uh, something, that a piece of, if you're going to be rolling out a specific piece of software for all your uh, end users, that it's compatible with uh, the uh, known operating systems that are on the computers of your end user. Yeah, that's very, that is true for uh, staging. That's a really important thing. Um, one benefit to virtualizing, and by the way, virtual machines, what we mean by that is it's like a simulated actual machine. It means that you have a piece of software that lets you run an operating system inside of an operating system, and that subsequent operating system thinks that it's being run on a regular inception. computer. Yeah, it is an inception kind of a thing. It's very meta. Totally meta. So it, it's a piece of software that emulates computer hardware, more mm-hmm. or less. That's that's kind of what a virtualization, yeah. a virtualization. The other thing is. about it is, it essentially means that instead of partition, it mimics a partition. If you say you were thinking, oh, I want to make, I want to partition my computer, so I have one with Windows ten, one with, uh, and one with the Windows ninety eight, because I have a bunch of old software and I want to do some old music production in this particular style, mm-hmm. and none of it's compatible. So you, but then you realize, oh. I don't. I didn't partition my hard drive. What do I do now? Oh, I'll just install this machine and I'll put Windows ninety eight on it. Yeah, that's a really good example. I didn't even think to bring that up. That's how I composed the theme song for this podcast. I did it in DOSBox with Monotone, uh, the Monotone tracker for PC speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, or for playing old games that are just aren't compatible with a modern. Ho- that, that aren't aren't compatible with the uh, current operating system. So you would set, so for example, you might use ScumVM or DOSBox to uh, put to uh, run uh, older games that uh, need a slower a, a slower CPU, and these virtual machines act as a slower CPU by mimicking the uh, by mimicking uh, slower hardware without actually having your hardware be slower. So, yeah, this is true. Mm-hmm. What game was I playing recently on? Oh, that's right. Recently, I had DOSBox loaded to play Rockstar, mm-hmm. and it was being really fast, and it was just going. I couldn't, I couldn't run it because the text just blurred through, and it wasn't even in one of those psychedelic modes where you agree to take LSD and then cocaine. Mm-hmm. It was <laughs> this was just trying to start up the game, right? So I could uh, act. So then, using DOSBox, I could manually 
I could um not manually um yeah. virtually reduce the speed of my CPU so that way the software thought that the CPU was much slower than it actually was. Yeah, that's right. You adjusted the emulated clock cycles per second mm -hmm. to emulate a slower CPU. Yeah, that's right. And gaming is a really tricky. It's one of the hardest things that you can do with virtual machines because it. A lot of the times, uh, a game will look deep into like hardware hooks and software hooks, and it will do little tricks back in the day to make older hardware capable of everything that it possibly can be. Sometimes that screws things up in virtualization. So games are by far the hardest thing that you can uh, emulate in a virtual machine, really. True, um, but it can. But the virtualization can help get around a few of those issues, but not every. It's not as it's not the ultimate solution, but it is. It's, it's definitely a nice big hunking band-aid you can slap over that gushing blood wound. There you go. That's <laughs> right. Usually it's great. In, in some occasions it's not so good. And for some eras of PC gaming, like particularly early 3D games, early 3D games from like Windows 95 and Windows 98, those are notoriously difficult to emulate. But now that our CPUs are getting so much faster, um, we're kind of brute forcing our way through that by just throwing more computing power at the problem. Um so the only other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of why virtualize, it's a very common practice in workplaces where um, it solves the problem of underutilized servers. So you used to have, I guess just to get terminology out of the way, there is a host machine and a guest machine. So the host machine, also known as the bare metal, that is like the physical computer that resides in your data center. And a guest machine is the virtualized operating system that runs on the host machine. So uh, when I say underutilized servers, what I mean is that if you just install an operating system on a server and it's uh, hosting a service, let's say email, for example, a lot of the time that server is just going to be sitting there doing absolutely nothing. Maybe it's being used like 15 or 20% of the time. That means that 80% of your uh, server cycles of, the, of your uh, productivity is just going to waste. You're giving electricity and you have to cool it and uh, there's manpower involved in keeping servers uh, up to date because you have to patch it and administer it and stuff like that. So it's not ideal. It's inefficient to have uh, an underutilized server. Only if you have a very highly utilized server does it make sense to uh, install the operating system on the bare metal machine. Um, if you have so instead of having five underutilized servers, maybe you have one server with five guest operating systems virtualized on it, all performing their duties, and maybe that uh, changes the server utilization from fifteen or twenty percent up to like eighty percent. So that's much better. It means you buy one fifth the number of computers, uh, and uh, that computer is doing five times as much work. So that's a really handy thing. Um, to your point, though, about staging. Um, to test compatibility of software to see whether it's appropriate for an environment. Virtual machines are nice because you can back up your virtual machine. You can take an image of it, it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, an image or, or, or what even else is it called? Like you can put an image on a regular snapshot. machine too. So. Yes, yeah, that you can do. But if you take an image or a snapshot is what it's called, um, you can take a snapshot of the OS, which means that you like copy the whole virtual machine um, then on one of the copies, you make the changes that you want. And if something gets screwed up, you don't have to reinstall the whole operating system. You can just revert back, revert back to that snapshot and try again as if it never happened. It's like loading a save game in a game where you just died. Basically, you're pressing F5. Yeah, sure. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, F5 
play Oblivion and tell me, and then uh, you'll recognize the value of F5. Oh, in most games, F5 is quick save and F7 is quick load. Yeah. Something like that. So, yeah, that's what, that's just what it's like. So, um, what I want to talk about today, I guess, uh, is first I just want to list a few different technologies that I've used for virtualization, um, really mostly having to do with games. I do have fun just creating virtual machines and installing different operating systems and kind of having a stable of different OSs at my disposal just to play with. Instead of uh, installing the uh, his operating system on the metal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have Windows 10 as my bare metal OS, but I have uh, I use VMware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll also talk about the different, uh, the different uh, software that you can use to virtualize uh, uh, virtual machines to create uh, and manage virtual machines. Sometimes that software can be called a hypervisor, the software that lets you uh, toggle between virtual machines or that uh, acts like an operating system dedicated to uh, managing virtual machines. And then I just want to talk a little bit about, uh, for the benefits of Akago, the kind of things you have to keep in mind when you're creating a virtual machine. And I can use Windows 98 as an example. So... First, let's just talk about the different types of software that we use. So my favorite one, I guess, has to be DOSBox. Yeah, although I wouldn't say this is for operating systems. We use this more for the actual games, more for DOS games. Yeah, it's not the fully featured MS-DOS operating system. It has a subset of the the commands that were available in MS-DOS and in DR-DOS and other similar uh, text parser command line driven operating systems, but it's specifically made to be MS-DOS compatible so that you can run software and games. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of what I do in DOSBox is games, but sometimes I do the music tracking stuff. Uh, that software works really well. Demo scene stuff works quite surprisingly well in DOSBox, although that's that's often prob- uh, problematic because demo scene productions very often would use low-level hardware hooks to do all kinds of crazy tricks, and sometimes it can't be emulated properly. Um, That's unfortunate. Oh, man. What's his name? Jim Leonard did a a mega demo recently that only runs on an actual 8086 processor, which is ridiculously cool. So that doesn't work in DOSBox, but he did take a YouTube video of it. Um, so, oh, and the, something else I did in DOSBox once was to make a uh, card for my dad. I made a birthday card for my dad using software that we uh, used to use in the 80s and print out cards on our dot matrix printer. We had to tear off the perforations and fold it yeah. yourself. And I remember you making it, too. It took you several attempts because you got the image all backwards and you got them print. You uh, had the text on the wrong side and the card was all inverted. Yeah, that's right. I did do that because I... I had great uh, Printmaster was the name of the software that I used to make greeting cards. And it did a fine job of outputting to printer a card that you would just fold in a certain way. But with DOSBox, I couldn't figure out how to get printer integration to work. I was hoping to uh, print to a PDF because a PDF kind of acts like a virtual printer driver, a virtual printer device. Um, I couldn't figure it out. So instead... I just took screenshots and I put it together manually in Microsoft Word, but then I got the locations of the pages screwed up and I folded it wrong and all that kind of stuff. I had to play with it. So anyway, um, yeah, 
You guys, I don't think anybody here doesn't know what DOSBox is. I love DOSBox. It's very cool that you can actually install Windows 3.1 in DOSBox, mm -hmm. and it runs beautifully. And the only pur purpose of installing Windows 3.1 is to run Simpsons screensaver. Right. Well, I have, there's a few Windows 3.1 games I like to play, and I can't. I don't really know any other way to play it. You can install do, uh, MS-DOS in virtual uh, VMware or in uh, Sun VirtualBox or other uh, VM uh, engines like that, but it's a lot trickier. I should give it a try. It's been a long time since I did it. You have to work with um, floppy images instead of CD images, which is usually not too bad. I think that's a .img file for a, a floppy image versus a .iso, which is one of the several uh, optical disk uh, images that you can make. And supposedly you can also install Windows 95 in DOSBox, which is crazy. That's really neat. I haven't tried that. I don't like to. I don't really want to do that because Windows ninety five replaces DOS, and I mean you can exit out to DOS mode. But for, for me, DOS box, I want it to be regular DOS for the most part. If I'm going to run Windows ninety five, I will usually do it in a virtual machine. But then it gets tricky because you have to. You need like a floppy disk image to act as a boot disk and stuff like that. Because Windows ninety five didn't boot off the CD. At least the uh, version that I have on disk didn't. Mm -hmm. It was an upgrade from uh, DOS. That sounds like a lot of uh, work. It is a lot of work. It was fun. It was challenging. Yeah, it's fun, but it's a lot of work. So if you're if you're adverse to a lot of work, unless I would suggest avoiding the other operating systems and starting with Windows ninety eight. Mm -hmm. It's also if you're uh, intrigued, it's a good way to experiment with versions of Linux if you haven't used Linux before and you don't know what to expect. Yeah, it's a great way to play with Linux. I mean, Linux. Um often lets you use what's called a live CD, yeah. which means that you can download the uh, ISO to um, install Linux on your hard drive, but you can often just stick that disk, you bring it to a, a DVD, and you stick the DVD in your computer, or you can um, you can also put it onto a USB disk and make that, uh, sorry, a USB uh, flash drive and make that bootable. And so then you stick that, you uh, stick it into your computer and you reboot your computer and it boots up and you have the option to boot right into the operating system. And it's like a fully functional version of the operating system that runs just off of that DVD or just off of that flash drive. It's not installed on your machine, so you can try it on your actual hardware to see how it looks and how it feels, which is really cool. Does, uh, can you install anything else when you're using it like that? Yeah, usually the live CD has an icon on its desktop that says install the operating system. No, no, I mean not to install the operating system. I mean to do extra software. Oh, yeah, I think you can. Not on a DVD. But on a bootable USB drive, I think you can install software on there. I never really tried, because all I ever use it for is to uh, install the OS. Uh, Robert Menez, he, uh, let's, let's uh, call him out. He can answer questions yeah. about uh, bootable live CDs, I'm sure. Yes. So, and so, that's, by Robert, the way, if you... you can, if you answer this, that would be super, and we'll uh, play your answer on the next show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No pressure. No pressure, man. No pressure. <laughs> so um, bootable CDs, by the way, or bootable DVDs, live CDs for Linux, they're an awesome way to troubleshoot your computer. If you do something stupid, like I've done a million times, and screw a up your... A million times? That's a, like understatement of the no, century. That's, yeah, it is. I've done a more, many more than a million times. Um, if you screw up your master boot record or if you're playing around with your partitions or something and you can't boot into Windows, it's a great way to uh, boot up an operating system and then take a look at your hard drives and stuff like that. Um Windows 8 and 10, I think, are a little more hostile to that. They uh, 
lock things down with different file systems and with different file permissions and stuff like that. I don't know whether it's as easy to do it with modern versions of Windows as it was with Windows XP. That was the easiest. And Windows 7 was starting to get a little trickier because of the way that it uh, uh, associated files with your logged-in user session. Mm -hmm. But regardless, even if all you need to do is to format your hard drive or to repartition something or to use other kind of low-level tools, a live CD is a great way to get like a mouse-driven interface and click around to do that kind of work with a graphical user interface. True, but that's not exactly, but that's not, I wouldn't call that virtualization. That's, uh, no, that's not virtualization. That's true. I'm getting off topic. Yes, you are. That's why, but it's, I know why you got off topic because I mentioned using a virtual uh, machine to run Linux. Right, which is something I do for fun, and that's great. And both Sun VirtualBox and VMware Workstation have terrific, uh, Terrific support for Linux operating systems. They have something called something tools. What do they call it? Just tools. VMware tools yeah. is what VMware calls it. Mm -hmm. um, it adds drivers and extra hardware compatibility, or so yeah, hard, virtual hardware compatibility I, to make it so run really nice and fast. I wouldn't say that it's got the best compatibility because uh, it does some stuff to your uh, network interface card. It to your inter so if you've been playing. Mm. Land games like we have, you might find that with VMware installed, that it could it actually interferes as it did for us. Yeah, because that's we, true. I, I can think of at least one game that comes to mind Call of Duty World at War. I could play over the internet with my dad, but when I tried to play on the land with Brian, we couldn't figure it out for the longest time. And then he disabled or rather uninstalled VMware, and all of a sudden it could work. So Mm -hmm. It's just there are some drawbacks because of how it that because of virtualized hardware and how the operating system may treat these uh, extra drivers. Yeah, it's true. Um, both VMware and VirtualBox create a virtual network adapter in your computer. I think it uses that for like network address translation and local networking and stuff like that, so that you can get internet access on your virtual machines without giving it a real IP address that's like connects to your router. So it kind of your computer sort of acts as a router between uh, your real network interface card and your virtual one. So um, sometimes games look at the very first available network interface card, and sometimes that's the virtual machine one instead of your actual network interface card. It's just sloppy programming on behalf of the uh, game programmers. So it's unfortunate when that happens, but it's pretty rare. There's only been one or two games that had that issue. Yeah, it's pretty rare, but... Just a, just something that uh, you need to be aware of because of uh, how it affects the uh, hardware. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That took me a long time. That took me many, many days to troubleshoot because it was the last thing I was expecting. Exactly. And it was just something that didn't, that didn't that, uh, you wouldn't have uh, assumed would be a problem because... Because otherwise, mm -hmm. the actual connection itself wasn't wasn't a, didn't uh, didn't show any other faults. It connected to the internet. He could he could do everything else. It just the only thing we couldn't do was play these one or two games. And so we thought it had something to do with our router itself, rather than the actual virtualized uh, cards versus the physical card. Well, we thought it was all kinds of things. We like looked at the router. We looked at we tried me acting as the client, me acting as a server. We tried. Um, configuring the router for, um, uh, I tried putting my thing into the demilitarized zone, the DMZ of my 
router. I tried forwarding ports and having port triggers and stuff like that. I tried <laughs> uh, my local software firewall that's built into Windows and opening. Uh, I tried all of this stuff. So in the end, all I had to do was, well, what gave me the hint was to uninstall VMware, and then it worked immediately. So mm-hmm. while we were playing that co-op, and now, now for whatever reason, it's working fine with VMware installed. We can still play co-op. Yeah. So I don't know if that's because we switched to Windows 10 and it has more intelligent assignment of network interface cards. Or, or maybe so, it was know. an update to VMware because it was a common problem. Could be. Could very well be. Mm-hmm. VMware is bloody expensive. I don't think most gamers own it. I was really lucky when I used to work for a uh, an IT uh, solutioning company. We had all these free, uh, like free uh, keys for VMware version eight. So I still use that, and it works perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And in school, we had all these free keys for software as well. That was mm-hmm. awesome. That's right. Well, they were mostly trial keys. They were for like a year or something, but mm-hmm. it was for really expensive software, like Windows Advanced Server and stuff. Anyway, we're getting way off topic now. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting back to DOSBox, I, sir, uh, I, I'm done with DOSBox, I guess. An alternative to DOSBox that I used for a while before DOSBox was invented, actually, as far as I know, I used to use something called VDM Sound. That was... That was a really interesting solution. I think it was for Windows XP. It might have been for 98, but it was probably for XP. Hmm, I um, I've never used it. I haven't heard of it until now. So what it does is, rather than emulating an entire operating system or an entire virtual machine, it only emulated specific pieces of hardware. So it's called VDM Sound. So as you can guess, it specifically emulated uh, sound drivers. And that was often enough to get it, the old games to work. It might have been Windows 98 to know that I think of it because that was a was that that was a 32-bit operating system or was it 16-bit? I thought it didn't it have 16 and 32-bit. Oh, I think you're right. And it would make sense. I mean, most operating systems now are like 32-bit, 64-bit. I mean, but but who's going to use 32-bit anyways when you can use 64? Yeah, I know it's it's crazy that it's still around. Some people need it for compatibility. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it let you play 16-bit games um, with virtualized uh, hardware hooks for, um, like, a virtual Sound Blaster card. And so that, that let you play a lot of those otherwise problematic circa ni- Windows 95 uh, early 3D games or, or early Windows games. That was a really handy thing. I haven't used it in quite some time. I don't know whether it's still a viable way to get things running, but... That was faster than using a virtual machine. That's something that I didn't mention. The fact that a virtual machine is running on your base machine means that by nature, because you're emulating um, a CPU, it will run more slowly than uh, software would be if you were to actually run it on your bare metal hardware. Another example of a drawback that you should consider. So, But if you do have a powerful machine, you're not going to feel the effects as much as if you have a slower machine. That's right. For instance, I remember, I don't know how long ago it was, so it was a Pentium 1 or a Pentium 2 or something. My computer wasn't fast enough to play even uh, Nintendo games, NES games, but it could play Game Boy games just because that had such a weak little CPU. So as time went on, we can play, you know, 100 Nintendo games at the same time. We can run 100 emulators at the same time. Mm -hmm. But that's just an example of uh, Moore's Law, I suppose, and the fact that that, uh, CPU goes a long way. For mm-hmm. successful emulation. Yeah, I mean, you can play Wii games on your computer. Yes, I can. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about emulation another time, um, but I want to get more into virtualization this time. Okay. That's why I kind of 
tentatively put Scum VM on my list here. I don't know whether Scum VM, despite the name, is a virtual machine or if it's just an emulator. I just don't know how that works. Let well, me see. Can, can you install an operating system with it? I, no. Okay, so I it doesn't emulate an operating system, but it does kind of emulate this operating environment for specifically games. for DOS. some games. Well, not really for DOS, but for games that were made for DOS. So you can't run any DOS game in Scum VM, but you can run specific games in Scum VM. Lucas Arts games, some older Sierra games, and a so bunch they, of other or, ones. So Windows ninety five games that were DOS compatible? No, not necessarily. Some of them were DOS only games. But it's uh, SourceForge describes it as a cross-platform interpreter for many point-and-click adventure games. And I think it goes beyond that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Some of them were Windows games, some of them were DOS games, but they're specifically games that were made in like certain engines. That's what it supports. Ah, okay. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm describing it vaguely because I only understand it vaguely. Yeah, so that's in that case, that would probably be more of an emulator then. Probably would be. So... Um, so before I talk about VMware and Sun... So it sounds like at some point the, uh, emulators oh. and uh, virtual machines do cross over since they have similar purposes. Yeah, that's right. Well, I guess they do because they both emulate hardware that allows you to run software on them. So they are, I guess, fundamentally the same. But a virtual machine uh, emula usually emulates a whole operating system upon right. which you can install more software, yeah. whereas an emulator only runs like software and not an operating system. And it system. allows you to do one thing at a time. Yeah. If any of you have a better definition of the difference between an emulator and a virtualization engine, I'd love to hear it. Voicemail letters. Yeah. We want to hear what you think. Even a tweet. I'd love to, I'd love to hear it because yeah. I'm kind of fumbling to, mm -hmm. to discern one from the prove other. Prove us wrong. <laughs> yeah. shouldn't be hard. <laughs> well, not hard to prove Brian wrong. Don't bite me. I already bit you earlier. No, you did. I should watch what I say. Yes, you should. <laughs> Um, so before I talk about Scum VM and sorry, before I talk about VirtualBox and VMware, um, I want to briefly mention Windows XP mode. Oh right, which actually ran on an engine called Microsoft Virtual PC, which was a pretty competent and capable virtualization engine. It was for Windows Seven, and I think it worked in Windows Eight as well. It's been discontinued and it's no longer supported, unfortunately, because it was pretty good. I guess it's because Windows is now using something called Hyper-V which is Microsoft's new virtualization engine, and it's the competitor to uh, VMware, uh, like ESX and the, the enterprise-level VMware servers. Hyper-V is no good for gaming, as far as I've tried. Um, so Virtual PC, though, was very good for gaming. It was like a consumer virtualization solution. Um, I think it was only good for Windows operating systems. I don't think it was able to do Linux. It had too many hardware uh, idiosyncrasies, the compatibility. Um, so Windows 7, various versions of Windows 7, I think Windows 7 Pro and uh, Ultimate and Enterprise, I don't think Home came with this, something called Windows XP mode, which got a lot of people excited, but I don't think it should have. Windows XP mode is a virtual machine. Um, Without was, actually being like a virtual machine that you have to install and configure? Well, it, it, yeah, it was based on technology where you did have to do that, but Microsoft packaged it so that it, you just turn it on and suddenly you have a Windows XP uh, virtual machine running without any fuss. Yeah. It was for layman. Mm -hmm. um, so the re virtual, um, sorry, Windows XP mode was great for software. It was great for, um, for uh, older software that would run in Windows XP or earlier with compatibility. It was no good for games. The reason for that was... 
the way that Windows XP mode renders. So there's two ways that you can connect to your virtual machine, or at least to Windows machines, that's common. Um, the way that we usually do it in VirtualBox or VMware is that we emulate the video card and what we see on our monitors is like the virtual output of a video card to a monitor. So it's like the directing, directly interacting with the operating system as you normally would. The alternative to that is that you do not emulate a video card with a monitor at all. And instead, you connect to the virtual machine via remote desktop. So that's like the MSTSC, the Microsoft Terminal Services Client. That's what you usually do if you want to connect to a computer remotely. I do that from work, for example. Sometimes I connect to my home PC if I want to run some software at home. Um, so that means that it's running, instead of uh, using your like AGP or uh, VESA or PCI or whatever bus to render the video output to a virtual monitor, like to a virtual video card into the monitor, instead it's sending that information over network connection. So it makes a lot of sacrifices. The frame rate is way lower. It draws things to the screen in a different way. It's not really capable of video or of... Uh, of animations, really. It's just really slow and choppy. It's not intended for gaming. It's not going to work with gaming. So if you have Windows XP mode and you've tried it before, you'll know when I say that it's just no good for gaming. All you can really run in Windows XP mode for games would be something like playing BBS door games or something like that, playing text adventures, things that don't have a lot of animation. You might even be able to play a really old golf game that's just rendered one screen at a time. Uh, to some extent, something like Lynx 386 or Mean 18. But even the uh, clicking your mouse to have the uh, swing meter would not really be very playable in that sort of a, a virtual machine. So Windows XP mode, if you want to play games, just don't even consider it. All right, so let's get to the big kahunas now. Um, how are we doing on time? Okay, we're good. Yeah, we have lots of time here. All right. I, I won't take lots of time. I just mm -hmm. want to kind of say the bare necessities here, and then I think we'll call it. Yeah. So um, the big kahuna is being Sun VirtualBox and VMware, both of which are very similar software. VMware Workstation costs, I forget, something like 180 bucks or 250 bucks or something like that. Mm -hmm. Sun VirtualBox is a free open source program. I think, it, I think Sun bought it later on. I forget who created it. It might have been Oracle or something. But it's great. It's very good software. However, surprisingly, VMware Workstation, despite the name, is a lot better for gaming in my experience than Sun VirtualBox. So if you happen to have a, a, a key for uh, VMware, or maybe if you don't, whatever. Uh, I was actually a VMware Player, which used to just be for executing pre-existing virtual machines and was very limited, but is now a lot more similar to VirtualBox. VMware Player is a good free alternative. I'm going to put links to both of these. The box, VMware Player. Let's I'll put these in the show notes so that you can go ahead and get started. Um, both of those are pretty viable. Mm -hmm. However, VMware Player is missing a few features that I'll uh, talk about uh, in a bit. So both of these are, uh, are applications. They're like hypervisor applications that allow you to create literally a virtual machine. You start off by telling it what kind of hardware you want in your machine, what kind of like the specifications of the CPU, how much memory, how big and how many physical disks, 
hard disks, um, whether they're IDE or SCSI, um, optical drives like uh, CDs and DVDs, other things like that, even virtual devices. And then uh, display adapters as well, whether uh, they're accelerated uh, display adapters or things like that. Um, so you specify that stuff, and you also specify which operating system you're going to install on it. Sometimes the uh, it will recommend hardware specs, minimum hardware specs, for the operating system that you're trying to install. And remember, sometimes the minimum specs are important, but also for older operating systems, the maximum specs are important too. If you give it hardware that didn't exist when that operating system existed, then it probably won't see it. So that's uh, something to keep in mind. I've had some troubleshooting issues uh, related to that. So I just want to walk through this kind of uh, item by item. Okay. Um, specifically, I guess, to help Akago, but uh, I, I promise uh, Akago that I will help you out uh, to uh, create your virtual machine and to get it up and running. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to do it through... Uh, VMware Workstation, because that's what I've got in front of me yeah. anyway. And Akigo, it sounds daunting, but it's not that hard. It's quite easy. It's nice if you're using these machines are quite uh, forgiving. And, well, <laughs> at least you'll have to enter any keyboard commands, and it's all graphical user interfaces. Yeah, this is true. I it's still confusing, it, though. It's daunting. It's, There's a lot of options. Yeah, there are a lot of options. I wouldn't call it idiot-proof, but I would say that it is... Uh, it's, it's doable. It's easier than it's ever been, but there's still a lot of things you have to know, and depending on the operating system you're trying to install, there's some wrong turns that you can take that will forbid it from installing. Yeah. So. Okay, so, yeah, and saying that, the operating systems for virtualizing that I've had the most problems with are MS-DOS, because you need to work out a bootable IMG floppy image. Uh, same for Windows 95. That was tricky. Windows 98 was tricky because you have to find some specific video drivers depending on whether you're using VMware or Sun VirtualBox. I think they were S3 video drivers, Super VGA, VESA drivers or something that were the most compatible for virtualization, something like that. If I find that, I'll put it in the show notes. I had trouble with IBM OS2. I really wanted to see that in action. Um, in high school, we took a trip a field trip to uh, IBM's office in Toronto, north of Toronto, and uh, I got to see OS2, and it was brand new, and it really wowed me. Oh, that must have been so awesome. It was cool. I saw all kinds of cool stuff at IBM. The other cool thing I saw there was ATM machines, so like automatic telling machines. Yeah. They were doing operating systems for banking machines. That was really cool to see mm -hmm. that stuff. It was for our computer class. So nice to get a field trip in a computer class. Um, and... Some flavors of Linux have better compatibility than others. I've had some issues with Debian, with VMware at least, with uh, hardware compatibility. Maybe it works better in uh, VirtualBox. Windows, um, Windows uh, ME and higher, I've had very few problems. Um, newer versions of uh, Linux, including Mint and Ubuntu and uh, different iterations of those, really no problem. Sometimes it's tough to get some of the um, virtualization extensions uh, installed. What do they call them? VMware tools. But for the most part, the newer the operating system is, the more compatibility will be easy. I also, by the way, was able to, only with a specific version of VMware workstation, I think it was version 9, I was able to get a version of OS X running on there. But Apple is very hostile towards virtualization. They have like 
um, signed hardware, and the software looks to see if your hardware is signed with their special key to permit you to install the operating system on that hardware at all. So you really had to hack around in the DLL files and stuff of VMware to allow OSX to even install on there. And then it ran like a pig. But it was fun. Uh, Apple products are just pigs in general. Apple makes... Apple makes good products, I guess, but they're so expensive that a lot of places don't replace them when they're really slow. So that's the problem that you often run into. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So slow that you spend like two hours waiting for something to boot up. Yeah, I know. Your your internship, that was sad to hear what you had to wait for. Oh, it was so pathetic that my netbook was faster than the uh, Apple desktop. Yeah, your shit netbook that's now running Lubuntu. <laughs> Thanks again, Robert, for that suggestion. That made it from extremely slow to just very slow. <laughs> hey, it's useful slow now as opposed to unusable. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we digress as usual. Um, so we'll start with uh, the hard drives. Okay, yes, let's. Uh, so when you're creating a virtual hard drive, um, you can choose the kind of technology behind the hard drive. Chances are it's going to connect via IDE or SCSI. Um, there's other ones too. Usually when you're, uh, when you specify the operating system to your virtual, uh, virtual machine engine, it will recommend what sort of technology you should use for your hard drive. So just go with the default. That should be okay. The biggest choices that are up to you that might have an impact are whether you want to split the disk into multiple volumes. So if you say you want a 40 gigabyte hard drive, you can choose if you want one 40 gigabyte file or multiple, like, two-gigabyte files. I think for performance and for various reasons, it's better to split it into multiple files. That's usually the default. So I would go with that. I don't know why you would want to change that. I'm sure there are reasons, but uh, stick with the default and split, the, split it into multiple volumes. Functionally, it won't make a difference. Um, what will make a difference, though, is the next option, which is whether you want to pre-allocate a hard disk um, if you So that means if you say that you want to make a 40 gigabyte hard drive, if you pre-allocate that space, that means that before you can use your virtual machine, it will take a while, but it will actually create a 40 gigabyte file on your hard drive. And that will be like the virtual hard disk, that file. Um, it takes quite some time to make a big hard drive like that, but then the performance will be better while you're using the virtual machine. As opposed to saying, no, you do not want to pre-allocate the file. And that means it will just create a teeny tiny file initially. And it will make that file bigger and bigger as your virtual machine consumes more space. So once you've installed uh, Windows 7, for example, that file will be maybe three gigabytes big or so, maybe two gigabytes. And as you start to install, if you install a three gigabyte game, then the two gigabyte file goes to a five gigabyte uh, virtual hard disk file. So it's a good way to save space but it slightly decreases the performance of your virtual hard drive, at least when you're creating something. When you're um, loading something that's already been created, it's just as fast as the pre-allocated virtual hard disk. So that's uh, hard disks are one kind of the physical disk that you can specify. The other type is uh, removable media. So that would be um, virtual CD drives, virtual DVD drives, and virtual floppy drives. Not too much to configure for these. Um, the biggest option that you'll have to choose for those, I guess, are whether you want to use an actual physical drive or if you want to use a virtual drive. So that means um, if you have, if you own a DOS game or a Windows, let's say you own a, a Windows 98 game on disk, you would want to say that your virtual DVD drive will point to your real DVD drive and that you'll put it into your D drive or whatever. That's where it will actually look. 
or if you have an ISO, you'll say, don't look at my physical DVD drive. Instead, look at this file. It emulates uh, a physical disk. It's an image of a physical disk. Um, usually when you're installing an operating system, depending on how you obtain that operating system, it's probably going to be from an ISO. But you may, you may change, uh, depending on the game that you're trying to play, maybe you own the disk, maybe you have an ISO, so you might have to change that on the fly. You can change that kind of stuff usually without turning off the virtual machine. You can, as far as the virtual machine knows, you're just taking out a physical disk and putting in another one. So don't worry about that. Uh, CPU. The only thing I'll say about CPU is that depending on the type of an operating system you're installing, different options might improve or break virtualization. Um, newer CPUs, I think especially like the Intel i7, has something called Intel VTX, which is like virtual, virtual technology extensions or something like that. Sorry, I'm not involving you too much, darling. It's just a list of... Uh information. I mean, what am I going to do? Just not agree with you? <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, sorry to sorry to be a blabbermouth, but do uh, do chime in if uh, something rings a bell. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and AMD has something similar called AMD V, which is their virtualization extension. So, Intel VTX or EPT and AMD V or RVI. That's what they call their virtualization extension uh, technologies. Those, if you just go to like the CPU preferences for your virtual machine, there's usually a checkbox that says, do you want to use these virtualization extensions, yes or no? And what these do, as far as I understand, um, they, uh, checking this on means that it will, to the best of its ability, the virtual machine will use real features in your real CPU, as opposed to you virtualizing and making like a virtual CPU. So using the real features on your real CPU makes it run a lot faster, but your CPU has to support that. So in order for those to work properly, first you have to have a CPU that has those extensions like the i7. Um, I think the i5 does not have that feature. Then you have to make sure that those features are enabled in your BIOS, in your actual computer BIOS, not in your virtual one. And then you have to enable it in your virtualization software, VMware or VirtualBox. And finally, it has to be appropriate for the operating system that you're trying to run. I think Windows XP is the earliest version of Windows that supports it. Maybe Windows 2000 does. If you try to turn those features on with Windows 98 or earlier, your machine will probably not even boot up. So that's a common reason why VMs sometimes don't boot up. So just keep that in mind. Um, okay, memory. It's kind of the same story for memory um, in terms of compatibility. Um, the only real option that you have for memory is how much memory you want to allocate. So um, it's handy if you have lots of memory in your PC. Chances are you have 8 gigs of RAM in your PC. Your actual operating system, Windows or what have you, is going to need a, a portion, the lion's share of the memory. or Not even the lion's share, but it's going to need a certain amount of memory uh, physical memory that you have. So you can only allocate a subset of that to your virtual machine. Mm -hmm. um, I, Because I like to play with virtual machines, I got 16 gigs of RAM. So I can allocate usually as much as 4 gigs of RAM or so to a virtual machine. And I can even run more than one at a time if I need to, but I try not to because that's pretty slow. If you only have 8 gigs of RAM, I would recommend not allocating more than 2 gigs of RAM to a virtual machine and leave the rest for your regular operating system. Um, however, try not to allocate too little memory to your operating system, to your virtual machine, because 
if it runs out of uh, memory that you allocate to it, it will start paging to the disk into a swap file, and that makes it go really, really, really slow. So give it enough, not too little, not too much. It might take a little playing around. If you want to change the amount of memory in your virtual machine, you'll have to uh, log out and turn off the virtual machine before you can modify that. Same with CPU. So my recommendation is for Windows 95 and 98, don't give it any more than 256 megabytes of RAM. If you give it more than that, it might not boot up at all. Uh, Windows 2000 and up, I think you can give it pretty much as you can give it uh, pretty much as much as you want. As far as I know, I don't think. I thought a ceiling. that there was a limitation if you were oh, using 32 bit. bit. You're right. Sorry. Thank you very much for bringing yeah, that I up. Yeah, I think it was like a limit of like two on two gigs on Windows on Windows Seven if you were using 32 bit. A 32 bit operating system cannot see more than four gigabytes of RAM. Okay, that's what I was and thinking. I don't know what the circumstances are, but sometimes you only see like three and a quarter or three that's and a half. That's if you're using uh, like the three is the set the sets of three as opposed to the uh, pair as, as opposed to like the two sticks together. Oh, maybe it has to do with how many sims or dims or whatever sticks that you have and how big they are. You might be right. Yeah, because I remember uh, when we're buying RAM, sometimes dep because depending on the uh, the way your motherboard stood up, you might need to buy two like a pair of two at a time. Maybe if you're, do, if you're doing it that way, or you or you go with three. Yeah, maybe you're right. That's because, a good point. Yeah, because it's not always uh, like a pair. Like it's not always uh, in sets of two. It's sometimes it was sets of three. Yeah, you're right. I think that had to do with double or triple. I forget what it was called. Uh, in the older, uh, the older kinds of i7 processors. Mm -hmm. Use like triple channel. I think that was it. There's yeah, double channel, channel RAM and triple channel RAM. That was I think. on Intel, but AMD, but AMD didn't have that. You would use just uh, you just had the regular channel. That's right. So I think with the Intel ones, I don't know if they do this anymore, but double channel RAM meant that you were supposed to install uh, sticks of RAM in pairs, and triple channel RAM meant you're supposed to have three sticks, and then that ran faster. I don't know. That's my layman's understanding. So anyway, yeah, so thank you for that. So 32-bit operating systems, don't bother allocating more than 4 gigs of RAM because it'll either not work or it just won't see more than 4 gigs. But the sky's the limit pretty much for 64-bit operating systems. Mm -hmm. I forget what they can see, like 32 yeah, ter terabytes see. of RAM or something crazy like yeah, that. Yeah, they can see a Two lot. Two terabytes, I think. Yeah, they can see like into, into a couple of terabytes, but... <laughs> we don't have that much RAM. Yeah, it's a dream. I wish I had that much. Yeah, maybe someday. Someday. And then Linux, uh, same story. If it's if it's sixty four bit Linux, uh, give it as much RAM as you want. Mm -hmm. But leave yourself some overhead for your basic op for your uh, regular operating system. Regardless of what you do, you're gonna always need to have. Uh, you can't allocate everything. You gotta leave some for your operating system. Otherwise, it's not. It just you're not you're not gonna uh, have either one running. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So if you give too little RAM to your virtual machine, then it will start going to the swap file in your virtual machine. But if you leave too much physical RAM for your uh, base machine, then your actual operating system will start swapping to the swap file, paging to the swap file, and that will slow down everything. So it might take some adjustment, but keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. So the last detail I wanted to talk about in terms of hardware configuration is configuring your display. Um, I believe both VirtualBox and uh, VMware Workstation allow you to choose um, whether you want to have 2D or 3D acceleration. Sorry, 2D and 3D acceleration. You can have both. I think um, Windows, everything before Windows 7 can benefit on the operating system level from 2D acceleration. 
and Windows XP and up, I think, can, or even, sorry, um, Windows 95 and up can benefit from 3D acceleration. The operating system itself is not 3D accelerated, but games and software can be. Whereas Windows 8 and Windows 10, the operating system UI is 3D accelerated, which makes it run a lot nicer and it uh, unties it from the CPU. Um, Evidence of that is, do you remember in Windows 95, I think uh, Internet Explorer was the big culprit for this, and Windows 98, if Windows, uh, Internet, if Internet Explorer kind of froze or something, you could like drag it around your screen and take <laughs> the whole screen. I remember. That's right. So those are artifacts of, uh, of uh, 2D uh, video rendering being tied to the CPU, which was busy doing other stuff. And <laughs> oh, I remember that. And it was just like, this is slow. Ooh, I can make these pretty images and not yeah. doing anything useful. But hey, at least the screen looks awesome right now. That was now. really funny. And in fact, in, even in Windows 7, if you open up the task manager and you just move your mouse cursor around, you can actually see the CPU being taxed. The CPU goes from like 0% to 2% or something because you're just moving your mouse cursor around and the CPU has to draw that. Whereas a Windows 8 and up, uh, the GPU handles that. So it has the UI has no impact on the CPU. Um, so I believe, I can't remember whether 3D acceleration tends to work in Windows 95. It should work in 98 and up. 2D acceleration should be fine, but it won't really have any impact on Windows 8 and up. But it doesn't hurt to turn it off, to turn it on, I think. Mm -hmm. if it's a I would say if it's a default, leave it on for that one. I think by default, it doesn't turn on either of those, actually, depending on which software you're using. So it might take some trial and error. Mm. But basically, if you're playing your game and it seems fine, then don't fiddle with the settings. It's probably okay how it is. Yeah. The other thing you can configure with your display is how much video memory you want to allocate. And this is the same kind of a story. I don't really have any rule of thumb for this, but 2D acceleration stuff takes very little video memory. Um, you, it's like in the megabytes. Whereas 3D acceleration, you might have to measure in the gigabytes. Um, trial and error. Um, if you're in doubt, look at the minimum system requirements for the piece of software that you're trying to run and see if it says you need a certain amount of 3D video memory to make it work. And then just configure your virtual machine to meet or exceed that amount. But again, don't starve your uh, actual machine because it might, uh, it might bug out a little bit. So that's my notes for virtualization. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that took longer than I thought. That's fine. Mm -hmm. What I'm going to do really quickly now is just in my uh, VMware workstation, I'm going to create a virtual machine. I have a bunch of ISOs for different uh, installers. So I'm just going to kind of walk through and talk through the steps to create a virtual machine. And once again, I could go, I'll help you over Skype or something, and we'll get you up and running. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to create a Windows XP virtual machine. So I click Create a New Virtual Machine. It asks nice me, big icon with a plus sign on that you can't possibly miss it. I'm sure. Like, well, it depends on the version of VMware that you're using. Okay. Um, so the first thing it asks me, do I want a typical configuration or a custom configuration? I'll just say typical for now. You can change custom stuff later. So I'll say typical next. Then it asks me, guess operating system installation. Do I want to install it off of a, a physical uh, optical disk? Do I want to install it off of an ISO? Or do I want to say I'll install the operating system later? So I will say installer disk image file, ISO, and then I'll browse. And there's my Windows XP ISO, so I click it in my Windows uh, Explorer, and I will click open. And VMware automatically detects. It says Windows XP professional detected. It also says this operating system will use easy install. 
This may be unique to uh, VMware, but maybe VirtualBox has this too. Easy install means that instead of you actually having to install the operating system step by step, it uses what's called an answer file. That means that it will do an unattended installation. It knows the best answers for virtualization. Yes, no, uh, this option, that radio button, that checkbox. It does all that stuff for you. And it can also prompt you for the CD key if that's a part of the installation. And you can put your your product key into uh, VMware, uh, and it will input that when the time comes. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's asking me for that now. It also asks you for your username and your password. So I'll click next on that. Okay, now it asks me for a virtual machine name, so I can call that Windows XP Professional, and it's asking me for the location of the disk of the virtual hard drive. So I made a partition, my V colon drive. That's where I put my virtualization related stuff just to keep it separate. So I'll keep that at the default. Now it's asking me to specify disk capacity. So by default, it recommends a 40 gigabyte drive and it asks me, do I want to split the virtual disk into multiple files or use it as a single file? I'll go with the default to split it into multiple files. Oh, so they say here underneath, this clarifies it. Splitting the disk makes it easier to move the virtual machine to another computer, but may reduce performance with very large disks. I don't know what a very large disk is. I don't know if 40 gigabytes, the default is a very large disk, but that's fine. Mm -hmm. Click next. And now you can uh, review your specifications before you proceed with the installation. That's right. So it gives me a summary of all the options that I've chosen, as well as some options that are kind of implicit. Um, it says that it's choosing for me half a gigabyte of memory. Um, network adapter is NAT, network address translation, and it will install for me other devices, CD, DVD drive, a USB controller, um, a printer, and a sound card. Mm -hmm. So I can either click finish to create the virtual machine or I can click customize hardware. So I'll just click customize hardware. And this lets me customize everything. So memory, it says recommended memory is half a gigabyte of memory. Uh, maximum memory supported, it says 13 and a half or so gigabytes of memory. Um, and then it gives the warning, memory swapping may occur beyond this size. So maximum recommended memory. Um, I'm going to click four gigabytes of RAM because that's much more than enough for Windows XP. I could, I could safely go with one. I could even choose half a gig of RAM if I wanted to, but it'll kind of hurt to run games on there. Mm -hmm. I would say two gigabytes is sufficient for Windows XP. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember it was such a big deal to get the computer with Windows XP on it because it's like, wow, I have like two gigs of memory. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think when I first had Windows XP, I had three quarters of a gig of memory, if I'm remembering right. So memory I could choose. Processors. Um, so by default, you can tell it how many, how many processors you want and how many cores per processor. So if I want, I could emulate a computer with 16 physical CPUs in it. I don't know how Windows XP is going to behave. Default is one CPU with one core, so I'll stick with that. Mm -hmm. Makes sense, since dual cores just started, started coming out just after XP. Mm -hmm. And then I have some checkboxes here. I can disable acceleration for binary translation. Um, I don't really know what that is, and I've never clicked it, so I'm not going to touch it. And then the next checkbox is virtualize Intel VTX EPT or AMD V RVI. That's what I was talking about with the uh, native CPU uh, acceleration uh, feature. Windows XP, you can turn that on. 
And then there's another uh, checkbox here, virtualized CPU performance counters. I don't know what that is. I'm not going to touch it. So clicking down to the next one, it's just kind of reiterating my information about the CD DVD drive. I'll keep that as is. It means the first time it boots up, it will use the ISO file for my Windows XP installer. Next is network stuff. It's on network address translation, which means that my it will uh, use my computer as a router. So my, my actual physical uh, D-Link router will not be aware that uh, another virtual machine or that a virtual machine is being plugged into it. It thinks that it's just getting information from the uh, network card on my, uh, on my actual machine. So that's fine. Uh, USB controller is the next option. Um, here you have an option to share USB devices that you plug into your physical computer, you can make them visible on your virtual computer, and the same goes for Bluetooth devices, so that's kind of cool. Uh, sound card is pretty much just turn on or turn off. Um, no need to really fiddle with that. You probably want a sound card, and it's a Sound Blaster compatible card. Uh, printer, there's not any options for that. And then finally is display. And by default, Accelerate 3D Graphics is turned on, and I can choose how much graphics memory I want. For Windows XP, the default of half a gigabyte of memory is fine, but depending on how much memory you have on your video card, you can bump it up. My video card has four gigs of memory on it, so I can put as much as two gigs of memory in my virtual machine. Um, and then from this hardware screen, I can also click the Add button, and I can add additional hardware. That's going to come up in a minute, I guess. My guess. Uh, you got everything installing. You, you really want to risk losing the podcast at this point. Oh, no, I don't. So, how about... Um, okay, I think that's enough. For, oh, there it is. Yeah. So, I can add more stuff. I can add parallel devices, serial devices. I can add SCSI disk devices. I can add a sound card, more network adapters, floppy drives, CD drives, uh, all kinds of stuff. We're going to hit cancel. Mm -hmm and close, and I'm going to cancel this out. But there, I just walked through how to create a virtual machine. From there, I would say, okay, create the machine. Then I would press the play button, which would turn on the virtual machine. It would boot off of my disk, and because I have uh, VMware Workstation Easy Install, it would do a whole uh, hands-free operating system installation for me, which is super-duper easy, and then it would result in a virtual instance of, v of uh, Windows XP. Bada-boom, bada-bing. All right, I feel like I've talked enough. If you guys have anything that you'd like to add about this conversation about virtualization, if you're able to articulate the difference between virtualization and emulation, we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any other stories, thank you again so, so much to Emmanuel. It was great to hear from him. Yes, thank you very much, man. That was great to have a new letter and a new listener. Yeah, wonderful to hear from you. Um, we hope to keep you around for a long time, and I will most certainly get in touch with you about whether we can uh, put a song of yours on the show, because I'd love to give you some exposure, and I'm personally interested in what I read about uh, your music, so I will be voraciously checking out the stuff that you've published. Mm -hmm. All right, so um, that's the end of our show. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We love you to pieces. We honestly and truly do. We appreciate you listening to us and tolerating us and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. Yep. And if you want to reach us, we have uh, three uh, avenues of choice. First choice, you can reach us on the web. We are squarefm.demodulated.com or by email, squarefm at demodulated.com. Or if you want to harass us on Twitter, we are at squarewavesfm. That we are. Yes, we are. So, 
Thank you, my darling, for uh, for uh, being my lord and master of the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome, my loyal minion. <laughs> and thank you guys so much for listening to us. Great to be talking to you, and we'll uh, talk to you this time next week. Yep, talk to you soon. Bye-bye, and beep-beep. Beep-beep. Oh, you stare at